0: today we are going to be in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we've been going through prophecies about the arrival of Jesus as we're preparing for Christmas in this Advent season. And so at this point what I want to do is invite Brandon Dupree up here. He's going to read from us for us from Daniel chapter 7 and Luke chapter 1 as well. So if you would all please stand and give attention to the reading of God's word.
1: before which, th- "'before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. "'And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, "'and a mouth speaking great things. "'As I looked, thrones were placed, "'and the Ancient of Days took his seat. "'His clothing was white as snow, "'and the hair of his head like pure wool. "'His throne was fiery flames. "'Its wheels were burning fire.' A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray.
0: Our God in heaven, we come to you this morning waiting for that long-expected Jesus. And so we pray that he would come today through the preaching of his word, through the opening up of his word, through the outpouring of his spirit to help us see him more clearly. Lord Jesus, we invite you into our hearts this morning to help us anticipate not just the kingdom that you have already brought, but the kingdom that is coming. We thank you that you have turned this whole world upside down by the way that you entered into it and weighed your life down for it. And so I ask that today, that where there's confusion, you bring clarity. Where there's chaos, you bring order. Where there's darkness, you bring light. All for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> I want to I open this morning by asking you all a quick question. How would other people describe you using like a, a word or maybe just a short phrase? How would other people describe you? Like, say you, you run a small business. Do, do your employees call you something like the head honcho? Or, uh, or say, you know, you husbands in here, for your wives, do they know you as her knight in shining armor? You know, or, or for you wives in here, are you ever going to be known as anything besides his better half at this point? Or when it comes to your kids, like which parent are you? Are you the fun one or the other one? <laughs> you know, maybe maybe people would describe you as as a faithful friend, a hard worker, uh, a fashionista. I mean, how how would other people describe? Yeah, these guys, fashionistas, they <laughs> enjoy that one. Um, How would other people describe you? Now, keep that in mind. I want you to ask this question now. In a word or a short phrase, how would you describe yourself? Would you just go with your job? You know, like I'm I'm a nurse or a, a banker, an engineer, a teacher, a doctor, whatever. And given our culture's preoccupation with money and career and things like that, that's a pretty common answer you'll get from people if you ask them, you know, who are you? Um, or maybe you'd describe yourself as, as a faithful spouse, a loving parent, a, a wondering soul, or to go with the most Christian of all answers, I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. How would you describe yourself? Anyway, um, I bring this up to draw attention to a contrast that we see in the gospel narratives. You know, as many of you know, we are currently walking through this Advent season and it's easy to see Advent as this time where, where we're just preparing for Christmas. We're preparing for the birth of Jesus and remembering all the good things that happened with that. And that's, that's obviously part of the design of Advent. Like that's, that's definitely part of it. But the other part is to create a yearning within the believer's heart for the coming of the kingdom of God and the return of Jesus Christ. That's the other part of Advent. And that actually, the the return of Jesus Christ, that's actually the thing that brings me to this contrast we see in the Gospels that I mentioned a moment ago, and that is the title, Jesus Christ. I say it's a title because Christ is not his last name. His mom wasn't Mary Christ and his dad wasn't Joseph Christ. Christ means Messiah, and if that doesn't help you, a Messiah is like God, it's it's God's anointed king, his chosen king. That's what the word Christ means. And Jesus is referred to as the Christ more than anything else in the New Testament, more than any other title, more than any other descriptor, more than any other phrase anyone would give him. They call him the Christ. However, Jesus almost never uses this word to describe himself. Do you know what phrase Jesus uses to describe himself more than any other? Say, the whispers, son of man. Excellent. Well done. It was the son of man. And where did he get that from? Daniel 7. So, be honest here. How many of you were a little weirded out by the fact that we read Daniel 7 this morning? Yeah, a few hands. Good. Thank you for being honest. Um, Why choose this one? Like, well in advent as as i've already mentioned you know we've been going through these prophecies about the arrival of Jesus and honestly the other guys took all the easy ones <laughs> so <laughs> so so weird matt went with weird daniel 7 and here we are <laughs> so by the way i should mention like if if you're not like a regular bible reader most most of the bible is not like daniel 7 so <laughs> don't let it scare you away from it daniel 7 is weird for all of us <laughs> every person in here. That's a weird passage. So, but as the scholar Dr. Michael Heiser likes to say, if it's weird, then it's important. And might I suggest that the supreme weirdness of this passage means that it is supremely important to us. And so another scholar, Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project that some of you guys might know, he said that in Daniel 7, what you have is the entire narrative of the Hebrew Old Testament distilled down to its most basic elements. You take the whole message of the Bible and you condense it as much as you possibly can and you end up with Daniel chapter 7. And as I've meditated on this passage... I am totally with him, totally with him. Now, here's the problem, though. I have, 23 minutes, okay. Uh, I'm gonna budget more. I have 30 minutes right now to clarify some of its weirdness. So all of you guys are gonna have to work with me again right here, okay? So here's what you need to do for the next 30 minutes. You need to invite an ancient Hebrew to come live inside your head, Okay? You need to you need to view the world the way they viewed the world. You need to look through the lens of the entire Bible the way they looked through the lens of the entire Bible. You need to just let go of some of our modern prejudices and modern preconceptions and just let the Bible talk to you on its own terms. Okay? Can you do that? Is that Hebrew in there? He or she ready to go? You guys ready to go? I'm not even getting a single nod. Come on. Okay, we got a couple Hebrews in here. Excellent. Let's do this. Okay, because here's, here's what I want to do for that Hebrew in your head. I want them to wonder. I want them to wonder what a true human looks like. And so I want to create a yearning in them. I want to create a yearning in you. And then hopefully it will help you see Jesus in a more glorious, wonderful, and satisfying light. That is my goal today. Okay? So we're going to walk through this passage in three scenes. We have first, the chaos beasts, second, the empty throne, and third, the Son of Man. So we enter scene one, the chaos beasts, starting in verse one. You know, when we're introduced to this passage, we learn in verse one that we're reading about a dream from the prophet Daniel. To get you up to speed here, the Babylonians have crushed God's people. The Psalms, the prophets, the books of history, they all give us snapshots of what this was like. Their capital city was sacked. Their temple was burned to the ground. Their men killed, their women raped, their children dashed against the stones. This is the context of Daniel. These are the darkest days of God's people. But for some of the royal officials of the, of the city of Jerusalem who weren't killed, they were deported to Babylon in order to be re-educated and assimilated into the Babylonian way of life. Now, as many of you are familiar, that's where the book of Daniel starts. And so we learn that Daniel refuses to capitulate to the Babylonian way of life, but he still serves the kingdom of Babylon faithfully. He keeps kosher, he refuses to bow to their idols. He prophesies and interprets dreams in the, names of the God, in the name of the God of Israel. And other than, you know, this little bummer of an episode where he's thrown down into a lion's den, but it's okay because he's not eaten. Other than that, the Babylonians are pretty cool with David. Like, he's, he's generally liked, generally accepted. He's a good dude, okay? He's a faithful servant of God and a faithful servant of God of his Babylonian captors. And because of that, he's given a seat of authority in their government. He's kind of like a vice president over some of the Babylonian affairs going on at the time. So he becomes famous, as I mentioned a moment ago, for interpreting the dreams of kings. But this night, in Daniel 7, he has a dream, and he's left utterly confused by it. So what troubles him about it? Well, the beasts have to be a major part of it, right? I mean, that's got to—that's got to have something to do with it. Like out of out of these storm-tossed chaos waters, he sees four beasts emerge. And the Hebrew in your head, by the way, they understand that what's going on with these waters in verse two. These are the same chaos waters that God spoke to when He brought order into His creation. They're the same chaos waters unleashed by human sin that swallowed the world in the great flood. The Hebrew in your mind is terrified by these waters. And she becomes even more terrified when these mutant beasts start emerging out of these waters. There's a a lion with eagle's wings, but then its wings are taken off, and it's allowed to have a mind of a man and walk around on two legs for some reason. There's a hungry bear with bloody ribs sticking out of its face, and there's a four-winged, four-headed leopard. And then lastly, there's there's a, a super beast, A beast that defies description. A beast for which there is no analogy to the beasts on earth. It crushed the other beasts. And in fact, it terrorizes all of creation. Its chaos is unmitigated. It's terrifying, brutal, scary, filled with horns. And it has an eye and one of the horns talks for some reason. Thank you for laughing. And so even the Hebrew in your head is slightly confused at this point, okay? And so she reads ahead all the way down to verse 17 to understand that these beasts are, as it says, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. These beasts are kings, and as we learn later in the chapter, they're also kingdoms. And that's got the Hebrew in your head thinking of Genesis 1. She remembers that God created the beasts and the humans on the same day, And even though God created mankind the very, very last, he also gave humanity a divine decree to rule over all of creation. The calling of humanity was to be an image of God in creation. Humans are supposed to exemplify the care, the creativity, the wisdom, and the love of God in the created order. That is their job. When God is asked to describe humans using a word or phrase, he says, they are my image. But what happens instead? Genesis 3 comes along and a strange beast emerges. A snake comes and a snake convinces the humans that being the image of God, that's, that's not nearly enough. If anything, like it's actually sort of insulting if you think about it. Why be the image of God when you can be God's yourself. And so it's an enticing offer, and the humans literally bite right into it. But what happens when humans try to take the place of God? Chaos ensues. Humans are cast out of the cosmic garden into the chaos of a fallen, death-filled world. It's a world filled with trouble Turmoil, death, destruction, and an awful lot of people who walk around the place acting like they're God. For what it's worth, the Hebrew in your head is as weirded out by talking snakes as you are. Okay, like, like, what's up with this beast? Where's the antidote for its po- poison? Well, the antidote comes from God's promise that He promises the humans that one day there will be a seed of the woman a son of humanity who will cure us from this poison. But he will be in conflict with the seed of the beast. He'll be in conflict with the powers of chaos. And so the central tension of the Bible is set up for us. Who is the seed of the woman and who is the seed of the beast? And so Eve has a son. That's a promising sign. She has two sons, actually, Cain and Abel. And then we meet another beast. Cain is overwhelmed by jealousy when his brother's sacrifices are accepted by God and his are not. God warns Cain about a beast, but this time it's, it's no snake in a garden. This beast has an entirely different name. What's this beast's name? Sin, said God in Genesis 4 verse 7, is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you but you must rule over it sin is a lion waiting at the door and you need to have dominion and so we see a son of man confronted with a beast and what does he do he becomes the beast and he murders his brother The story of the Bible continues along these lines, city after city, kingdom after kingdom, war after war, oppression after oppression, until we read in Genesis 6 that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. Even for the good guys of the story, like we keep seeing they got as much snake's blood running through their veins as anybody. We have God call Abraham and tell him that his seed, his, his child, his son, is going to save the world. And so when his wife can't conceive a child, what do they do? They decide to sexually violate one of the servant girls and get her pregnant. We move a couple generations down the line and we meet Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But it turns out he's a liar and a cheat and a coward. And he's as much a snake as anyone that we've seen in this story so far. King David commits adultery and impregnates another man's wife, and then he has the husband murdered for his trouble. Solomon, King Solomon, he rules over a prosperous kingdom and blesses the whole world with his wisdom. But when he can't control his own animal instincts, he marries 300 wives and takes 700 concubines and compromises the entire future of the kingdom of God. It's the wives of this king who introduced many foreign gods into the worship of Israel. God selected this kingdom. He selected Israel to display himself to the world. They were his image, and yet they bowed down to images that they made with their own hands. And if you read the prophets, you learn that the kingdom of, that God had selected the kingdom of Israel. They become just as violent, just as oppressive, apathetic, and beastly as any other kingdom in the ancient Near East. So what's God's response to this? He sends a beast to Israel. We read in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 17. It says, Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon has gnawed his bones. And there are many other passages I could go to to show you how God describes kingdoms as beasts. But for now, let's just understand the first beast in Daniel 7, the lion with with the wings, that's Babylon. The the church, the, the early church especially, always interpreted the next three beasts as the Media Persian Empire. After that was the Greek Empire underneath Alexander the Great. And then the fourth super mega destroying chaos beast, that's, The Empire of Rome. You see, this dream actually maps pretty nicely onto human history. And yet, this passage in Daniel 7 is playing on key biblical themes. It's not just these four kingdoms that act like beasts. And it's not just human kingdoms in general that act like beasts. Like, no, if if you have any self-awareness at all, which I know is a precious commodity in the year 2019, if you have any self-awareness at all, any hint of humility in your bones, you see the same beastly urges in yourself. The snake has deceived all of us and convinced us all that things would just be so much better if we were God. So... It could be the petty tyrant of a husband who rules over his wife and children with an iron fist. He's a beast. It could be the cutthroat business person who does anything to get ahead and hoards his wealth like a, like a wolf guarding its prey. It could be the embittered gossip who only feels joy when they're chewing on the fat of other people's lives. And I could go on to describe the beastly devastation of drug addiction or the rabies-infected nature of our, current politi- of our current political moment or the way humans use and abuse sex in order to follow their most basic instincts or how the injustices of this world chew up the poor all over the place. But what's the point here? My point is that when we try to be gods ourselves, we actually become less Human. We become beasts. And so we move on to scene two the empty throne. Now I ask again, what does it mean to be human? If you had to describe it in a word or phrase, what would you say? And in a university town like our own, it's normal to suggest that, you know, we're merely the result of random, undirected evolutionary processes. That when it comes down to it, there's really not that big of a difference between us and the animals we go and see at the zoo. I mean, sure, we write symphonies, we practice science, we use reason, we build cities, we read, write, do math. Oh, and might I add, we also build zoos. (laughs) But really, it's just a chance coincidence that we go to the zoo to look at the chimps rather than the other way around. Okay, so obviously I speak tongue in cheek here, but besides zoo builders, what are humans? And as I as I suggested before, we are God's image. Let me actually read the passage to you from Genesis chapter one, verses twenty six through twenty eight. In a word or phrase, what does it mean to be human? It means to rule. It means to have dominion. It means to show the world what God is like through the care of this earth, through its inhabitants, and through one another. It's, it's a super high calling. It is the most dignified calling that man could have ever received. And so we read in something like Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, it says, like, it says this, when I, when I look at your heavens... The the work of your fingers, God, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Like you have made him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion over the works of your hands. Like this is a high high calling. There's a weight to the glory that God has given to humanity. And the weight is, is actually increased all the more when we see Daniel's dream continue to go on in verses 9 through 10. Daniel looks up from the chaos waters and he fixes his eyes on heaven. And what does he see? In verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. In Daniel's dream, he's transported to the divine courtroom. Thrones... Thrones, more than one, are set up. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat on his throne chariot that has wheels of fire and streams of fire and just fire everywhere. Now, this, this symbolism may mean very, very little to you. But for that Hebrew in your head, like this, this shakes them, okay? It's a picture of a conquering king on his chariot, coming to claim what is rightfully his, turned up to like infinity. (laughs) Like just cranked up. And so how would you describe God in a word or phrase? Ancient of Days seems to do the trick pretty well. Um, Daniel 7 in general, that's a good one. Hard to improve upon that. So the heavenly courtroom is seated, but you'll notice something or someone is missing. There is no human in this courtroom. There are multiple thrones, perhaps just two, perhaps myriads. We don't know. Perhaps there are the heavenly hosts, the thousand of thousands, and the 10,000 times 10,000. Perhaps they have thrones too. It's not clear from the text, but we know there's more than one. Who is missing? Who else was supposed to have dominion? Who else was supposed to sit on a throne? Who left at least one throne empty? The Hebrew in your head is frantically raising their hand. I know, I know. And so the books of judgment are opened and our eyes are turned back to the chaos waters of verses 11 in verses 11 and 12. Now, ironically, these beasts who represent the rulers and kingdoms of this world, that represent the ones who have dominion on this earth, they are not on the throne. You'll notice that. Those beasts, they're not on the throne. So what does that mean? It means that God's throne is not made for someone who rules the way that these rulers rule. For modern people, you mentioned the fact that people are supposed to have dominion, and what do they think of immediately? They think of the way that we you know, uh, pollute our planet in order to eke out a little more profit, or they think of dictators who would rather let their people starve in the street than to even give an inch of power away, or they think of a heavy-handed boss or a control freak parent or an abusive boyfriend. These are who we think of when we hear about dominion and authority, but none of these people are on the throne. As Johnny e. Cash put it, they have empires of dirt, and so the courtroom sits over these empires and judges them. And the verdict is similar, similar to the verdict Daniel prophesied over King Belshazzar in Daniel chapter five, when he sees the writing on the wall: "Meanie, meanie, tekel, parson, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to another." The fourth beast, the the super beast, is judged and destroyed. This is not the way to glory, nor the way to honor, nor satisfaction, nor any great and eternal good. It doesn't come this way. Glory comes a different way, which means that the way to get dominion, power, glory, and immortality is not the way that these kings on earth have been doing it. As we will see, the only way to keep your life is to lose it. And so we move to scene three, the son of man. Now, I know a short amount of time, but are you yearning yet for a different kind of human to enter this story? Like after the, I'll tell you this much, the Hebrew in your head, they saw their city devolve into a beast and then they saw their city get conquered by a beast of the kingdom of Babylon and that Hebrew is yearning for another type of person to enter this story. And so Daniel looks back up to heaven in verse 13, and he sees this. And maybe this is a good part for us to just stop for a second and address a potential point of confusion. I thought, you might say, that Christmas was about celebrating the Son of God. So why do we keep talking about the Son of Man? Which is it? Son of God or Son of Man? And of course the answer to that is yes. We modern people have several ways that we describe humanity. Like scientifically, we'll we'll call them Homo sapiens. Uh, when my daughter wanders off at the grocery store she's prone to do, I'll just call out down the aisle, watch out for the small human. <laughs> True story. Um, Homo sapiens, human, person, people. These are, just, these are different ways to describe members of the human species. And that's all son of man really means. Literally, it's a son of Adam. It's, it's a human being. It's a human one. It's a weird way to put it. it. sounds like Star Wars or Lord of the rings Ask the human one. Um, but that actually makes this vision all the more astonishing because this human, this son of Adam, is riding on the clouds to the ancient of days to receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is the only cloud rider we read about. He is the cloud rider when he comes to Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments. He's the cloud rider as he protects his people as they escape from the jaws of Egypt. He's the cloud rider throughout the Psalms and the prophets when he comes either in salvation or judgment or sometimes both. Yahweh is the cloud rider in every instance of the Old Testament. Except this one. The cloud rider is a son of Adam. Additionally, this human also receives worship, honor, and glory from all the nations of the world, which is also something that belongs only to God. And so the Hebrew in your head right now is thinking, well, I I guess this cloud rider must be both human and divine. And of course, that Hebrew is right. You know, there's a lot more to say from Daniel 7. There's a series of novels that have been written about it, which I don't exactly agree with, and a remake of one of the movies starring Nicolas Cage, which I don't think anyone in the world has watched. But let's suffice it to say here that this human, in Daniel 7, before receiving glory, he is trampled by the beast, in Daniel 7, verse 25. And so let us finish. um, (laughs) Okay, stick with me. Let me finish with two stories from the life of Jesus, one prophecy, and then one more story. Okay, okay, so and I, I, I'll go fast, trust me, because even the Hebrew in your head, as much as they love hearing stories, they're also excited to see the kids in the Christmas program, so we're just gonna push right through this. Okay, story one, story one, talking about the Son of Man here. In Mark chapter 10, there's an argument that breaks out among Jesus' disciples over which one of them is going to receive glory. Jesus is always, always ready for a teachable moment, and so he sits them down, has them, you know, kind of face each other. I don't know if that's actually true. He, had, he sits them down and he tells them about not the birds and the bees, but the humans and the beasts, okay? Follow me here. Jesus says in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones, what they do is they exercise authority over them. In other words, you know how powerful people in this world operate, okay? He goes on in verse 43, but it, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, this sounds very different from the beasts we've been hearing about today. And why is that? Because in verse 45, it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you see it? Like, the the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The one identified with God in Daniel chapter 7, this is the one who reflects the image of God perfectly. This person serves. This person lays down their life. Okay, so that's story one. Story two, near the end of Jesus' earthly life, we'll be in Matthew 26 if you want to turn there, is the, near the end of his earthly life, we're inside a courtroom. But it's a very different courtroom we were just reading about in Daniel chapter seven. Jesus stands before his accusers in silence until Caiaphas, the high priest, commands him in Matthew 26, Verse 63, he says this, I adjure you, says Caiaphas, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? What is your judgment? And the assembled courtroom replies, He deserves death. With all the context of Daniel 7 in mind right now, do you see why the high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy when he says he's the Son of Man? And maybe maybe the high priest is a little extra mad because if Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man, who does that make the high priest in in this scene? He's the super beast, right? And so with those words, Jesus sealed his fate. Jesus is claiming to be the glorious Son of Man. And what is Jesus about to experience? He's about to go to the cross. So where is the throne? Now hold on to that thought as we look at one prophecy. you know, There are really three prophetic characters that we meet in the Old Testament, and we've mentioned two of them. There's the Messiah, who comes to restore the throne of David. There's the Son of Man, who receives this cosmic throne. And then there's the suffering servant of Isaiah. Now, what's hard for the Hebrew in your head to see is how these three are related to each other. It's hard, honestly, for most people to see. Because before... The powerful prophecy of how this servant's death is going to atone for the sins of his people, we read these words in Isaiah 52, verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When Jesus was crucified, he was marred beyond human semblance. Why? Like, why? Why do it this way? Because in the body of Jesus, he was showing us what we had done to the image of God. It was so marred that it was unrecognizable. When Jesus was crucified, do you know what he was accused of? Read from the lips of Caiaphas, he was accused of blasphemy. And when he's standing before the Roman guard, they say, that he's treasonous. He was accused of blasphemy and treason. That's that's our sin, guys. That's that's our sin. By bearing the image of God wrongly, we've all committed blasphemy to the highest degree. In our desire to, to create our own little kingdoms, we've committed treason against the King of Kings. And Jesus bears the penalty For those sins in his body on the cross. He is broken in his humanity so that we can be healed of our beastliness. So, how does the throne of Daniel 7 relate to the cross of Jesus? Now, let me read quickly from James Stewart. I'll let him do the heavy lifting. It is a glorious phrase in the New Testament that he led captivity captive. The very triumph of his foes, it means he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to serve his own end, not theirs. They nailed him to a tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had defeated God with his back against the wall. Pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. Jesus conquered by being conquered. He won by losing his life. He gained a kingdom when he took the cross. And as though to show the world what Jesus accomplished, God raised his body from the dead in glory. He is the perfect image of God and his body to this day bears the marks of his coronation ceremony. And so we go to our last story. We've read it already, but this is a Christmas message, right? So we go to Luke chapter 1 and we read this. And let's see if you can hear echoes of Daniel chapter 7 now. The angel announces to Mary that she's going to have a son. It says this in Luke chapter 1 verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the announcement of the long-awaited king. This is God become human in order to cure us of our desire to be God. And so what should we do at Christmas besides adore Jesus? How do you describe Jesus in a word or phrase? He's the son of God, the Christ, the son of David, the seed of the woman. He is the son of man. He is the savior of the world. And he graciously invites you into this new kingdom. He invites you into this new type of humanity where the way down is the way up, where to be low is to be high, where to have nothing is to possess all, where to give is to receive, and where to serve is to reign, where to bear the cross is to wear the crown. And so this is the only kingdom that lasts And through the love, mercy, and forgiveness of the cross, he calls you to come and follow him and become a true human. Let's pray. Father, these truths are glorious and powerful, and we thank you for the way that you fulfilled prophecy for the way that you redeemed humanity, for the way that you purchased us from our sin and gave us new life in Jesus. And so I do just pray for the crossing. I pray for our church, God. I want us to be people who reflect the life of Jesus into Fort Collins, into Colorado, into our nation, into this world. And it comes when we lay down our lives. It comes when we sacrifice in order to benefit one another. It comes when we give our lives over to Jesus. And so create hunger in the hearts of your people today that will be satisfied only when we see Jesus in clarity. So thank you for this morning. Thanks for this time. Would you be with us as we continue to celebrate your arrival into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.